Good morning, good morning, good morning. Um, I'm just going to start by reading our scripture, if we're able to have um, the reading. Um, for those of you who prefer to have an actual Bible in your hands, if you've got your own, that's great. We're in Luke 8. Um, or we do have some Bibles over at the side over there, if anybody wants any. Please do help yourself. Um, so we're continuing our journey through Luke, and we're in chapter 8, and we're beginning at verse 16. And as I read the scriptures today, you're going to, you may feel, I won't tell you what you are going to feel, you may feel like we did when we first sat down to prepare for today, that these were three quite disjointed parts, but actually we're going to talk about how we feel they, they really relate together. So it says, no one lights a lamp and hides it in a clay jar or puts it under a bed. Instead, they put it on a stand so that those who come in can see the light. For there is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed, and nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the open. Therefore, consider carefully how you listen. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what they think they have, will be taken away from them. Now Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him, but they were not able to get near him because of the crowd. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to see you. And he replied, my mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. One day Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Where is your faith? He asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. Heavenly Father, as we really dig into this word today and as we consider some quite challenging um, thoughts that come through it. Father, I just pray that we'd be open to your spirit moving in us today. And we just pray as always as well, God, that whatever Sarah and I speak this morning, if it's of you, it would stay and it would settle. And if it's not of you, God, that it would just drift away and be forgotten. So we give you this time now in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning again, everybody. Um, yeah, so we're, we're really excited to bring um, this message this morning. Um, if you enjoy listening to one of the Rochels, then you'll love this morning because there's both of us. If you don't, then you might want to take a very long bathroom break now because there are both of us up here. Um, we, did, we had the opportunity to decide whether one of us wanted to bring the message this morning or both, but we, the more we've chatted and prayed and looked through this, the more we both felt um, that this was an extremely timely message for all of us as individuals, but also as a church in the season that we're about to go into. And we both felt really passionate about the things that we felt God was speaking to us to share with you this morning. And so we have chosen to split the message between us. 
So I think if we can just start off this morning just by greeting one another and what the question I would like you to pose to one another is if you could choose, it's a bit of a strange question, if you could choose one light in your house, one light to share with other people, which light in your house would you choose to share? Why is it special to you? Why do you like it the most? If you could please greet each other and answer that question, that would be great. Okay, very good. Fantastic. We are going to be focusing quite a bit of our talk this morning on light, hence the random question. But also, I just wanted to get you thinking this morning about actually how much we do, without even noticing it, how we do respond to the light that we have. We have lights in our house for a purpose, for a reason. We decorate certain lights with certain lampshades or choose the way they look because we we are, as humans, drawn to the light. And we know as Christians that we are drawn to the greatest light. Jesus, he calls himself light of the world. And although this morning we are going to be talking a lot about the passage about the light under the bowl and how that relates to us, let us not forget at any point this morning that Jesus is the ultimate light. And when we want to sort out our own light, we must model ourselves on him who brought the greatest light we've ever seen. So as I said earlier, we we genuinely believe that the message God is bringing us this morning is really timely. We know that we're about to step into a new season as a church. We, We know that Jonathan will be leaving us soon, and we send him on his way with great excitement, great blessing for his future, the things that God is going to take him to do. But we also know that that leaves us as a church in a new phase. Um, And we believe this morning that Jesus is speaking to us directly as a church and as individuals that actually we mustn't lose sight of the original purpose and vision that he has given us as a church. We do not exist as a church just for Jonathan for the things he wants to do. We exist as a church for Jesus Christ and the thing he wants, things he wants us to do. And as Sam said, we kind of have this passage with three distinct parts, and we're going to unpack each part this morning. So, Sam, do you have the clicker? Oh, you have. Thank you. So part one, if you look in your Bibles, I'll even give you permission to get your phones out this morning if you usually follow the Bible on your phone. Part one, we're looking at Luke chapter eight, verses 16 to 18. And that is the part where it's talking about that light and how you don't put a light under a bowl or shove it under your bed. And our questions that we're going to be asking ourselves are, do we truly recognize our duty to shine? 
And do we believe that we are well placed to shine our lights, not only in our lives outside the church, in our jobs, our family, our friendship groups, but in the church as well? Have we positioned ourselves? Are we well placed within our church congregation to shine our light? Then we've got the middle section, which is the bit where Jesus is speaking to people and his mother and brothers are outside. And he explains that if you are part of God's family, truly part of his family, you are those people who not only hear, but obey. And the question I want you to ask yourself this morning is, what is it that stops us from obeying once we have heard God's word? And finally, we're going to move on to that amazing story of Jesus and his disciples in the storm. And actually, the the question there I want you to be thinking about is when storms hit, Jesus says to the disciples, where is your faith? And that question this morning, not a judgmental question at all. We're going to be looking at that passage and seeing that Jesus does not ask the disciples that in judgment. He simply asks, where is your faith? And that's really important for us to consider this morning. And I think considering a lot of this passage is about light, it's really timely again that we're looking at this on bonfire night. Now, bonfire night is undoubtedly probably Sam and I's absolute favorite night of the year. We love it. Um, We love everything about it. We love the fact that my mum always makes homemade toffee. And last year we had to eat it with spoons best toffee ever. It didn't set, but it tasted amazing. Thanks, mum. We love the fact that in our family, we have this brilliant tradition where we all come together at mum and dad's house. Every family out of each of us, there's my brother, my sister, us, mum and dad. Everyone has to search the shops for the cheapest box of fireworks ever. And then each person has to display their fireworks and they say the name, the amazing, crackling, exploding dragon fire of doom. And then it goes, poof. And everyone's like, wow, it's amazing. We love everything about bonfire night and fireworks. And Sam's going to explain a bit in a minute that the only reason why fireworks and bonfires work is because they are set against the canvas, the background of darkness. Okay, hello, me again. So just to enhance visually what Sarah was saying there, this is what Bonfire Night should look like. And this is what Bonfire Night in our family does look like. Ah! You're kind of squinting from the back of the garden, you get this burst of light and then suddenly it's gone. But regardless, there's that sense of excitement always with every single firework because from the darkness of the night, something comes forth and bursts and it's just a really, really exciting time. So bonfire night is the best night of the year. And as a year one teacher, I get the joy of teaching my class about the gunpowder plot, which is one of the best and most exciting parts of our history to teach children about. And they get really into it. But as we head into this time of year, seasonally, things start to get darker. The clocks have gone back. We all start at five o'clock looking out the window going, it feels like midnight. And it just draws in, doesn't it? And actually in the darkest time of the year, the potential there is to kind of hunker down, disappear and re-emerge when spring comes. But it just so happens that throughout the darkest time of the year, that's when as, as people, as people of God, we have some of our most amazing celebrations that focus on light. 
So as a country, we have bonfire nights. So we've got the fireworks, we've got the bonfires going off. And as we head towards Advent, how do we mark Advent? We light a candle each week. We start to recognize that the light, the light of the world is on his way. We decorate our trees with twinkling lights. We cover our houses. And despite the energy bills, we're all still going to do it because it makes us feel better. And when I cycle home from work and it's horrible and I'm wet and I'm thinking, I just can't wait to get home and get in the shower and I'm absolutely frozen, it brings me real joy in December when I'm cycling past twinkling lights, a massive blow-up Santa that's kind of stuck halfway like this. But we're constantly, aren't we, as people trying to bring that light into the darkness and it's quite a symbolic thing of what we should be doing as Christians anyway. So I've got up here on the screen... um, the four seasons, spring, summer, autumn, winter. Quick question for you, and there's no trick here, nobody's right or wrong. We all tend to have a favorite season. What's your favorite season? Have a quick chat with the person next to you and tell them why. Okay, so I think let's have a little vote. Let's see which is the most popular season in the room. Uh, Who votes for spring? Whoa, big vote for spring. Anyone want to tell me why? Why have you chosen spring? Spring after the cold winter and it's cheerful and promises of new things. Fantastic. So for those of you at home, you might not have heard that. Um, Debbie said about it's about coming out of the cold winter there's hope new life and things are starting to get brighter and lighter aren't they fantastic thank you what about summer anyone gone for summer oh yeah we've got some summer fans in the room anybody want to tell us because it's light at 10 o'clock at night it's light it's light until 10 o'clock at night and it's warm Absolutely. And there's something about summer, isn't there, particularly over what, what are naturally the school holidays. Often people will get together, you see people, and there's that sense of, of community as well. What about autumn? Anyone gone for autumn? I'm going to put my hand up here. Autumn is my favourite. Yeah, autumn. Anybody want to say why? Beautiful colours. Colours, yeah. Beautiful and bonfire night. And, yeah, absolutely. And anyone gone for winter? Oh. For those of you at home, we've got two hands in the air for winter. Um, Joe, why have you gone for winter? Yeah. So gathering together for Christmas, family occasions. So for you and your family, that's something that's really important. Yeah, well, I mean, of course, you don't have to do any gardening. <laughs> I know, but you have to get all the like stinking leaves out the drains and stuff, don't you? You've got all those jobs to do. Um, but yeah, of course. So each of the seasons has its merits, and we can, we can all agree with that. And of course, seasons, for those of us who've been Christians for a while or who have been around the church, it is definitely a phrase that's used a lot, isn't it? How many of us have used the phrase, I'm moving into a new season? Anybody else used that or heard that? 
We talk about seasons of our life, and they're not necessarily matched up with autumn, spring, winter, summer, but we recognize a season is a period where something happens, and then we progress into a different time there. Now, for those of us who love spring, or summer, or autumn, or winter, despite that being our favorite, I'm sure we can probably agree that we wouldn't like the entire year to be that season. Because, of course, each season brings with it something essential that's needed for the next season to appear. Now, Sarah's actually, Sarah's quite a, um, a unique conspiracy theorist. Um, you know, you get like in the States, you had people who denied that Biden had won the election. And you've got climate change deniers. And you've got all these kind of wacky theories going on around the world. Well, Sarah is a season denier. She denies the correct dates of the seasons. I always say to her, no, well, it happens on the equinox. She says, that's not true. And I say, well, when does the season change? When I say it does. So (laughs) she just determines her very own calendar. So she's quite unique. We'll set her aside for the minute. But for those of us who who recognize the seasons and their change, we will see as things happen. Spring is about growth and new life. Summer is about the celebration of life in its fullest. Autumn is a time when things start to die back and we start to reflect and we start to prepare for a time of waiting. And then winter is when everything's stripped away. And I once heard a great speaker say that death is the engine of life. And winter is that period of death, isn't it? But you need that for new life to come. So it's really, really important. So the reason we're saying this, and you're thinking, what's this got to do with the scriptures? Today we're thinking about our context at the moment as a church I don't know about you, I would say it feels a little bit like the whole world is very much in an autumnal season at the minute. It feels like things are really starting to cut back, things are going wrong, there's all kinds of crises going on around the world. Um, Somebody on the radio was talking about this perma-crisis where each day something new is happening and it feels, or it can feel, if we allow it, that events are overwhelming us. And as a church, Sarah mentioned there, we're, we're moving into a time of interregnum where our pastoral lead will be moving on to new and exciting ventures. And that could potentially leave us in a position where we're thinking, what now? What, what do we do? We haven't got a minister. But actually, that season, that time of interregnum is going to be key. And I I was speaking to some people who were here during the last interregnum, and they said, actually, the last interregnum was a really powerful time. It was a really exciting time where we're able to reflect, we're able to look back on what has been and look towards the new life that's coming. So it is only when we have those seasons of darkness, when we have the times where we, we have that natural darkness that comes in, it's only in times like that that we can truly allow our light to shine. And so Sarah and I today truly believe as we move into this next season as a church, it's our time, all of us, to make sure that our light is shining bright and it's for us to determine what happens next. So I'm going to hand back. So if we focus in now on the first bit of our passage, if you do have a Bible, then please open it to Luke 8. If you've got your Bible on your phone, it'd be great to follow along. If you don't have either of those things, then please just give Kenny a wave over here um, and he will pass your Bible from behind him, I'm sure. Thank you very much, Kenny, for volunteering. Um, So if we look at verse 16, I'm just going to read it again. It says, no one lights a lamp and hides it in a clay jar or puts it under a bed. Instead, they put it on a stand so that those who come in can see the light. 
For there is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed, and nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the open. Therefore, consider carefully how you listen. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what they think they have, will be taken from them. And let's just unpack this passage, um, thinking about the context that Sam just um, said for us. Now, I would like to show you um, this incredible building here. If we can just get the PowerPoint back up. Okay, so this is Old Flamborough Lighthouse. Has Has anyone been to visit Flamborough Lighthouse? Oh, very good. Pam has. Excellent. Pam, if I say something that is wrong, don't tell anyone. We'll go with my version. Okay, so here you've got the, um, the, the headland, the coast round by Whitby, Scarborough. And here you can see the little nose, the point. This is Flamborough Headland. And on this headland, there are, in fact, two lighthouses. So the one that you can see here, this is known as the Chalk Tower. And this is one of the oldest surviving lighthouses in the UK. This building here was built in 1669 by a guy called Sir John Clayton. And he actually sought permission from King Charles II to build three of these lighthouses, different places along the coastline. After he'd built this one, however, Sir John Clayton went completely bankrupt and he never built the other two. And it is suggested that he probably went bankrupt because in order for this lighthouse to be lit, it was like a beacon lighthouse, so it had a lot of brush and coals on the top to be lit. In order for it to be lit to help save sailors, passing sailors had to pay a fee for it to be lit. Now, as we know, sailors the majority of them, were not particularly wealthy. It would have only been the big merchant vessels that would have had the money for that. And so, of course, no one ever paid for this beacon to be lit. And so in all the time that it stood there on Flamborough Head, never once was this lighthouse lit. It was just a tower. Time went by with no lighthouse on this headland and it became one of the most treacherous parts of the coast to sail. There was a lot of very, very large vessels. Still to this day, it generally is very large vessels that pass this coastline because it is very deep water. And there were many, many wrecks. And in fact, it was recorded that just in the years between 1770 and 1806, so 36 years, 175 ships were wrecked off this headland. That is about one every 12 weeks. And that's just in 36 years. So if you imagine that continuing for hundreds and hundreds of years, one every 12 weeks. And there was no lifeboats in those days. So those poor souls would have just perished in the water. However, in 1806, it was collectively decided to build a new lighthouse. So this is the new lighthouse here. It was a little bit smaller when it was first built. It was raised again just um, a few decades ago. And this was built with a clockwork motor with an oil lamp. And it was visible for 20 miles. And since it was built in 1806, it has shone its light over the sea every single night since, saving hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of ships and lives. What we can see here is that light has a duty. Light is not just there for people to look at. 
Sometimes we do. But light primarily has a duty. And when we look in this passage, we can see that the the point they are trying to make is to make you understand that it would be completely stupid. We all know it would be stupid to light a lamp and then hide it under a bowl or stick it under our bed. None of us would invite someone round, would we, for dinner and say, I'm just going to go put the lights on. Put your lights on and then stick a bowl over it or hide them under your bed. There would be no purpose. Lights have a duty. As we go into this time of interregnum, we need to make sure that we are not so blinkered by our internal circumstances in this church that we start to use those as bowls to put over our heads, to put over our church, so that our light is no longer shining out into the community. If we think of that first lighthouse that was built, the chalk tower, the beacon, it never shone. Why did it not shine? Because of finance. Why do we not shine? Why are we not shining on a day-to-day basis? Why may we not shine as we head into a time of interregnum? Is it finance? Is it time? Is it fear? Is it internal squabbling? Is it habit? Is it pride? In the passage, we can see that not only should you not hide your lamp, but there is also a clear warning for us here as well about hearing and obeying as well. Therefore, consider carefully how you listen. Whoever has listened will be given more. Whoever does not, even what they think they have, will be taken from them. As a church, we need to hear the warning that Jesus says that actually we have been given first and foremost the vision and the duty to shine out into our community. Let us continue shining out, continue with our vision. The first lighthouse here, the Chalk Lighthouse, was actually built about a quarter of a mile inland. So even had it been lit, it would not have been as effective as the second lighthouse that was built right on the coast And I believe this morning that God really wants to challenge us on our placement as individuals and as a church. In order to be helpful, in order for our light to shine out the most, we need to be well-placed. I believe as we move forward over the next few months, we're going to have a real need in our church for people to step forward into new positions And perhaps now is your time to be praying in your home, in your small groups, and just praying, God, where do you want me to be placed? Where am I going to be best placed in order to be most helpful to shine my own light out and to help the church shine? Perhaps you're going to feel that you are called into a position of leadership. Perhaps you're going to feel that it is time for you to serve in the worship band, perhaps in the prayer team, the kids' ministry, youth ministry, stewarding, welcome, whatever it is. Where does God want you to be placed? Straight after that passage about the light, we move on to where Jesus talks about his mother and brothers. And he replies to the crowd, my mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. I remember reading this years ago as a teenager and completely misinterpreting it and thinking, that's really rude. So he's saying that he doesn't want to see his mum and his brothers 
Actually, that's not what Jesus is saying at all. He is recognizing them as his family, but he is also then speaking to the rest of the crowd, to us as well, to all his followers, by saying, actually, we are part of his family if we hear God's word and put it into practice. And we can use these lighthouses here as a perfect example of our choice there. The beacon, the man who built the beacon saw the need for light to be on that headland. He heard, he built a tower. He never obeyed. It was never lit. It was just a tower with all that potential to shine and save lives, but none of it put into practice. But the lighthouse was built and lit shone and still shines today that is what we are called to be like to hear and to obey okay so what stops us obeying once we have heard i want to show you this image it was at the very beginning there some of you may recognize that image it's an image that's been produced in various forms over the years and it's aligned to the vision given by William Booth, who was the founder of the Salvation Army. Um, Just a quick show of hands. I won't ask you, don't worry. Does anybody know who I'm talking about when I talk about William Booth? Yeah, so great. So there's quite a bit of recognition in the room. so, So you may already understand what it is we're going to talk about. But William Booth lived, he was born just before Queen Victoria came to the throne and he died in 1912. So his life spanned the whole of Victoria's reign and into the Edwardian times, which of course for our nation and for the world was a time of massive change, massive industrial progress. We became the richest nation on earth at the expense of many of our own citizens becoming some of the most wretched and poor on earth. And William Booth became, he was originally a Methodist and he became a founding partner in the Salvation Army, which was looking at the state of the lives of people in Britain and the world and saying this is not good enough. As the church, we have got to shine out. We have got to do more. And so the Salvation Army still serves to this day here in Warrington. Um, My school's very connected with what they're doing there, and we see on a week-to-week basis how the Salvation Army is still meeting um, the needs of our community. They are very much the hand and feet of Jesus as a part of the wider church. Well, William Booth was one day in a carriage and he was riding along and he felt himself drawn into a vision and he believed it was given by God. And in this vision, he saw a raging sea. And in the middle of the raging sea, there was a big lighthouse and there were rocks and there were people on the rocks. And he recognized that the people on the rocks were the people who had seen the light, who had been saved from the sea and had been pulled out to safety. And he likened those people on the rocks to people who had heard the message of Jesus, who had seen his light for what it was, and they themselves had accepted it. So in this vision, the people on the rocks safe are Christians. They're the people who know Jesus. They've been saved themselves. But the people still in the water are those who've not heard. Even the family and friends, children, mothers and fathers of those who have been saved, still lost in the sea. And he talks, and it's really vivid imagery of these souls drifting about in the water, screaming, lost, hurting, broken. And he, of course, in his time, he was saying, these are people who are struggling with alcohol, people who are struggling with no work. These are people who are struggling with no hope. These are people who are suicidal. These are lost and broken people. 
But then his eyes turn back to the rock to see the people who have been saved and there are one or two jumping in, back into the water to save and to pull out. But then he starts to comment on what some of the others are up to and it's quite vivid. I've got it up here. It's quite long. But I just think if I just quickly read this to you. So this comes about halfway through the vision. Now this astonishing unconcern, so he's talking about the people on the rock, could not have been the result of ignorance or lack of knowledge because they had lived right there in full sight of it all and even talked about it sometimes. Many even went regularly to hear lectures and sermons in which the awful state of these poor drowning creatures was described. I've always said that the occupants of this platform, this rock, were engaged in different pursuits and pastimes. Some of them were absorbed day and night in trading and business in order to make gain, storing up their savings in boxes, safes and the like. Many spent their time in amusing themselves with growing flowers on the side of the rock, others in painting pieces of cloth or in playing music or in dressing themselves up. Some occupied themselves chiefly in eating and drinking, Others were taken up with arguing about the poor drowning creatures that had already been rescued. But the thing to me that seemed the most amazing was that those on the platform to whom he called, who heard his voice and felt that they ought to obey it, at least they said they did, those who confessed to love him much were in full sympathy with him in the task he'd undertaken, who worshipped him or who professed to do so, were so taken up with their trades and professions, their money-saving and pleasures, their families and circles, their religions and arguments about it, and their preparation for going to the mainland, that they did not listen to the cry that came to them from this wonderful being who had himself gone down into the sea. Anyway, if they heard it, they did not heed it. They did not care. And so the multitude went on right before them, struggling and shrieking and drowning in the darkness. And then I saw something that seemed to me even more strange than anything that had gone on before. I saw that some of these people on the platform whom this wonderful being had called to, wanting them to come and help him in his difficult task, were always praying and crying out to him to come to them. And then the vision goes on to talk about how some of these people on the rock are saying, come to me, Jesus, come to me. But Jesus is not coming to them. Jesus is in the water. He's dived in and he's calling from in the water. Come and help me. You're safe. Stop calling for me to come help you. You're fine. I'm in here with the people who need it. Come and help me. And it's this image, and my goodness, it must have been a real gut punch at that time to the, to the church at large in Britain to hear this vision spoken. Because essentially, he was calling out what he perceived as religious action without the faith action. He was, he was calling out people who were saying all the things that the Bible wanted them to say, but they were not living it out. They were beacons, so they had all the potential there, but they weren't lit and they weren't shining out. Now, please hear me before anybody here gets offended. I'm not saying this is you. I'm not, I'm not condemning anybody in this room. I'm not condemning our church. But I am asking the question to myself. Where am I in this picture? Am I, Sam, me, am I in that water with Jesus? Am I diving in to save people? Or am I stood at the side saying, oh, this is awful. Oh dear, look at those drowning people there. Or am I too busy in my own pursuits? Am I not even looking at the water? Am I too busy debating about how we get into the water? 
where am I in that? Because the center point of this image and the entire vision is the light. That light that shines out. The light that requires us to follow it. And once we found it, to then shine out as well and get involved. William Booth was a radical. He was a radical. And with radicals comes opposition. The uh, alcohol industries in the UK realized that he was harming their profits because the Salvation Army was stopping people being drunkards. And so they went on the attack against him. And they tried to defame his character. And they tried to challenge the things that he was saying because they recognized that he was dangerous. And he was dangerous because he carried the light. And he didn't just talk about it, he acted on it. And so he was actually starting to affect other people because he was bringing people into the light. So I think there is a real challenge there for us, for me. Honestly, this is, whenever we speak, I always say this, we're not standing here talking at people, we're sharing in this experience of learning together. I need to reflect really carefully about what I'm doing. Am I a part of the crowd on the rock or am I getting into the water? Am I hiding my light, covering it, not allowing myself to stand out and shine out? Or am I allowing myself to shine out brightly? Do I want to be a lighthouse that draws ships away from the rocks and towards Jesus? Or will I become a beacon that has all that potential and yet people and ships will still hit the rocks around me? It's a massive challenge. It is a massive challenge. And it just brings us back to that question. What stops us from obeying once we've heard? Because we all have things that we struggle with. We all have things that hold us back. We all have reasons why we might explain our failure to shine out in the way that Jesus really wants us to. But it's well worth us considering, what is it that's stopping us? How can I overcome that? Do I want to overcome that? So for small groups and small group leaders, just so you know, I have sent a copy of these questions and that full vision for you to read together in your small groups because it really is quite provocative to consider and go through going to hand back over to Sarah. When we were preparing um, for this, um, this talk, we were, we were saying that it would be so easy for us to just stop now. Let's stop, let's reflect on those questions, because those two parts of the passage seem to marry together very well. And then you've got the, um, the story at the end about the storm, um, and we, we know this um, story very well, most of us. Um, here's a picture from an amazing children's book um, called The Storm That Stopped that we enjoy reading to the children upstairs. We've got a copy at home as well. And we know this story. We know that the disciples got into the boat with Jesus. Jesus is feeling extremely tired because of all the ministry that he's been doing. They go out onto the Sea of Galilee. Now, the Sea of Galilee had some of the most treacherous storms around. They used to have, wait, they still do, waves up to 20, 25 feet high. So obviously, in a small fishing vessel, we're not talking about a bit of a bump, you know, where you might need a sick bag. We're talking about my life is in danger. We're all going to die. Um, and as someone who is an extremely, extremely light sleeper, I will wake up if someone breathes too near me. I just cannot comprehend the fact that Jesus managed to sleep through that. I think Sam probably would. He can sleep through everything and often does. Um, but 
here we have a bunch of disciples, the people who have been closest to Jesus. They have heard everything he said so far. They have seen all of his miracles, everything that he's done. And when this massive storm hits, they completely freak out. They lose their heads. They don't know what to do. They are completely and utterly terrified, convinced they are going to die. I would imagine some of them are feeling quite angry at Jesus as well, the fact that he's just snoring in the back of the boat. They wake him up. And I think that God has asked us this morning to include this passage because there may be some of you sat here this morning who are saying in your heads, it's all very well for you to say, my light needs to shine. It's all very well for you to say, position yourself better, place yourself better, shine out, reach the last, the lost and the least. But you don't know what is going on in my life right now. You don't understand the storm that has hit me. I'm finding it difficult today to even keep my light glowing at all. The tiniest flicker on the wick of the candle that is my faith. So how am I meant to make it shine? And I think what God is asking us to do this morning is to just take a small moment to consider this passage and listen to these words here. The disciples went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. Jesus got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Where is your faith? He asked his disciples. I think sometimes we think about this story and we don't remember the actual words. Jesus did not rebuke the disciples. He rebuked the wind and the waves. There is a difference between hiding our light under a bowl, choosing to hide ourselves away. There is a difference between that and being caught up in the storm. And if you are one of those people this morning who is just feeling that you cannot relate to the first two passages that we've read, then please understand that Jesus does not rebuke you this morning. He rebukes the wind and the waves and he simply asks you, where is your faith? And we know from reading elsewhere in the scriptures that faith can be as small as a mustard seed and it's still powerful. So if you feel that you are in the middle of a storm this morning and you don't even know how you're going to keep your light glowing, then all Jesus asks you is to hold on to that mustard seed of faith and he will rebuke the wind and the waves around you. And that we, as your church family, we will shine that light bright for you. We will come and help rescue you out of the waters. We talked for quite a while about this passage and we almost had an argument about it as well, about how on earth we didn't want to shoehorn this in. And actually, um, from spending some time recently with a few people in our congregation who are going through unimaginable amounts of grief and trouble and questions and doubt at the minute, I felt that it's really, really important that we do include this. I've sat in Sunday morning services, listened to sermons before, where someone has been preaching very evangelistic messages about getting out into the community, shine your light, reach the last, the least, and the lost. And because of my personal circumstances at the time, I've just thought, I can't even listen to this. I don't understand how I can do that. And it's important that we include this passage. And when you look at it in your own time or in your small groups, make sure you include this and just remember 
that the challenge is for us personally to shine our light, take the bowls off ourselves. Don't look at anyone else in the church and think, they're not shining their light very brightly, are they? Because we don't know what's going on in other people's lives. And perhaps all they're doing at the moment is just clinging onto that mustard seed of faith whilst the storm rages around them. And that's okay because Jesus doesn't rebuke them for doing that. He just reminds them, where is your faith? Where is your faith? Fantastic. So just as we come to a close, I, I just invite you to, to close your eyes if you feel comfortable to do that. And we'll just spend a bit of time in reflection and prayer. Father, just before I continue, I, I just continue that prayer of anything that's been said this morning that is of you, that's Holy Spirit guided, may that settle in people's hearts today. Anything that's just of Sarah and I and is of no value, let it just disappear. We want to obey you, God, and we want to be speaking for you, not for us. And I just feel, following on from what Sarah said there, we just need to consider once again that sense of seasons. For those who feel caught in the eye of that storm, whatever that is for you in your life, in your journey, in your faith right now, you may feel like you are very much in a winter time where it feels like everything has gone. Maybe there is death. Maybe there is trouble and harm. You might feel like you are in summer. You are running full pelt. You are shining bright. You've got all the energy. You've got all the time, all the focus. Wherever you place yourself in those seasons, know this. You are called to shine your light no matter what. are called no matter what to shine your light but in your times of weakness in your times of being in that storm Jesus stands in that gap and we as your church stand in that gap with you and those of us that can will shine bright for you and we know that one day you will shine bright for others too I just call on us all to reflect as well. Do any of us today feel like we are a beacon? We are built, we're resourced, we're fed, we're ready, but we're just not shining out. If that's you today, I just encourage you to open your heart to God and, and speak to him. Maybe grab some of the prayer team after the service and say, look, this is what I feel. Can you pray with me to help me find out how to, to shine my light? Or maybe you've been shining out and you're feeling really tired and you feel like you need somebody to come alongside you. Like Moses in the Bible when he has to have the two men holding his arms up to complete the task. If that's you, speak up. Find someone to pray with you. Lord Jesus, we just place all of this into your hands. Thank you, God, that you say you are the light of the world. When it all comes to it, you are the light. Whoever follows you walks in the light. And God, I long to follow you to walk in the light with you today. 
might not know how to shine out myself, God, but with you as the example, with you as that guiding light, I know that the best I can do is fix my eyes on you, follow your ways, hear your word. And just walk with me today in that journey. Amen.